You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. You are listening to Beyond the SIG, a prescription for transformative pharmacy care. This podcast is developed in collaboration with the University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy and their Flip the Pharmacy team and paid for through CDC grant funding provided by the Pennsylvania Department of Health to the Pennsylvania Pharmacists Association, broadcasted exclusively on the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Long before COVID-19 began ravaging the nation, pharmacists were already on the front lines of another epidemic, the opioid crisis. In this episode of Beyond the SIG, Brooke Kalusich, a rising third-year student pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy, chats with Pete Kreckel of Thompson's Pharmacy, who has garnered nearly 40 years of expertise in providing care to patients in the community, especially to those with substance use and opioid use disorders. They discuss innovations in community pharmacy practice, the essential role of pharmacists, and the new Flip the Pharmacy Change Package as they relate to opioid dependency. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Beyond the SIG, your prescription for transformative community pharmacy care. My name is Brooke Kalusich, and I am a rising third-year student pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy. Today, I am honored to be joined by Pete Kreckel, pharmacy manager at Thompson Pharmacy in Blair County, Pennsylvania, Flip the Pharmacy champion, and of course, I have to mention Pitt Pharmacy alumnus. Pete has been a true leader in shaping pharmacists' response to the opioid epidemic and continuing to advocate on behalf of his patients. So Pete, it's great to have you. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to share 39 years of experience on the bench taking care of patients and uh, maybe sharing some words of wisdom that I've accumulated over the years to uh, be able to help advance this profession. I think a lot of people often wonder, you know, here I am 62 years old, you know, lots of gray hair and people asking me, so when are you going to retire? And I don't know what the answer to that question is because I think I have so much that I'm able to offer this profession because of the passion that I have for this profession. Well, that's awesome. We're, we're so excited to dive into your story. So if you could please just give us a little bit more background about your career journey as a pharmacist and your current role at Thompson Pharmacy. All right. Well, I've been a community pharmacist for my entire career. I graduated from the University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy in 1981. Uh, along with my wife, who is also a pharmacist, her maiden name is Kabitsky, and everything in Pitt's pharmacy school back then was in alphabetical order. So we were always lab partners, and we just continued on with that. We were married the 4th of July in 1981, and about four weeks after that, we received our license. And so for about six short months, I worked for one of the major chains. And when I was uh, doing the battle that I continue to do 40 years later for more staffing and more technician help for all pharmacies, the district manager said to me, Pete, I've watched you work. And if you quit talking to those patients so much, you'll have plenty of time to get all of our paperwork done. 
I knew at that very moment I needed to reach out and do something else. I went home from work that night and I said to my wife, we are going to need to make a change because I don't practice like this, even though as a very young pharmacist. So I, I knew very early on in my career that consultation with patients was critically important. So we were fortunate enough to land a couple jobs here in central Pennsylvania in Blair County. Denise had worked for Cop Drug for as a student for about three years. So there were two job openings, one in Tyrone and one in Hollidaysburg, and we were hired for that. And the most interesting part of that conversation with uh, Mr. Cohen, who owned the chain, I had a very impressive resume that I built at Pitt. I was a president of my class for three years, two years, president of the student council. I had this really impressive resume, and I said to him, would you like a copy of my resume? And he said to me, no. It's not necessary. Anybody married to Denise Kabitsky has to be all right. When can you start? So I started working at Cop Drug in Tyrone for 26 years and built the business entirely on patient consultation. Tyrone's a small little town of about oh, eight to 12,000 people if you count the outlying areas. And this was one of four drugstores in town. And so I worked very, very hard to become part of the community, but all along, patient counseling was critical. Yes, I had some doctors that would uh, lay a little bit of a smackdown on me for telling their patients about side effects like prednisone therapy causing uh, hyperglycemia and prednisone therapy causing GI upset. But I always thought that the patient's knowledge always came first. So after about 26 years, knowing that that chain was going to be sold uh, to one of the major chains, I knew I couldn't work for them. I landed an opportunity with uh, Thompson Pharmacy in Altoona. Uh, Bill Thompson's dad started the business back in 1963. Uh, Billy Thompson, another Pitt alumnus as well, along with his dad, uh, really grew the business a whole lot and bought a couple stores in Altoona. So it's a five-store chain. And I came to work with him for uh, back in 2008. And his dad, who also sat in the interview with us, said, to me, he said, I always want to make sure there's plenty of tech help because my pharmacists need to get out and talk to the people. That to me is what is critically important because we'll provide enough technician support for you to do the things that will free you up to be able to go out and talk to the patients. I also work for Dr. Zane Gates two days a week. That's part of my obligations with Thompson Pharmacy, where patient consultation is what I do all day there. Wow. Wow. What, a, what an awesome story that is. And I know as a student myself, trying to pave my own career path, I always love learning about pharmacist journeys to their current roles. So thank you for sharing that. But now, based on your perspective as a community pharmacist on the front lines for nearly 40 years, what, what do you feel have been some of the major factors contribu contributing to the opioid epidemic? Wow. Well, as I said, you know, 40 years, you, you see a whole lot of things change. And, you know, we can go back in history as far as pharmacology goes, you know, from the very early beginning of the 20th century in the 1900s, when Park Davis made adrenaline, which was the first commercially available product uh, for pharmacists to sell that they didn't have to compound. And so we saw a lot of changes, you know, in those years, but I'd have to say the 40 years I've practiced, we've seen the most 
change. We have seen benzodiazepines introduced like crazy. I was there when Xanax was introduced, but nothing, nothing I don't think has changed more in my 40 years than the opioid prescribing habits. Back in 1981, 1982, if you saw a patient get a prescription for maybe 60 Percocet, you thought, wow, they must have cancer. They have something really serious. You know, four Percocet a day was really a, a lot of opioids for these patients, and they must be at death's doorstep. Then in the uh, early 90s, we got Vicodin and we got Lortab. And those drugs came uh, out and we saw a lot more prescribing of the hydrocodone analogs. Although hydrocodone had been out for a very long time, it wasn't until Vicodin and Lortab came out that we saw a really significant rise. And then of course, in the mid 1990s is when the lid came off is when Oxycontin became available because it kind of took away the fear of opioids. The company, as we all know the story, we're not going to beat it into the ground. We all know that Purdue Frederick Company actively promoted it and said it wasn't addictive as long as it was being used for pain. So I think the doctors just pretty much heard, well, it's not addictive. Opioids are not addictive if we're using them for pain and we're very, very free to prescribe it. I know you'll find this amazing, the listeners in the audience, but I remember when we had OxyContin 160 milligrams. And I would always tell the physicians 160 milligrams, think of it in terms of Percocet. If we think of, you know, OxyContin 80 in terms of Percocet, we are looking at a whole lot of Percocet tablets, it only being five milligrams, would be the equivalent of 16 Percocet for OxyContin 80. So I try to educate the prescribers as best as I could with it, but Purdue Frederick obviously did a much better job promoting it, and hence we have the opioid crisis today. However, as much as we want to blame Purdue Frederick, I was to a conference in Altoona, uh, Judy Ward, who is a nurse, and she's also our state representative, was hosting this conference on the opioid epidemic. And one of the ladies in the audience raised her hand and she said, you know what we need to do? We need to sue Purdue Frederick. We need to sue that manufacturer of OxyContin. And Judy very astutely looked up and she said, wouldn't you know, I have two pharmacists in the audience today. She said, uh, Pete, would you or Denise want to take a, a crack at answering this lady's question? And I said, ma'am, you are absolutely right. We need to sue the Purdue Frederick company for producing that drug. And Purdue Frederick is going to say, yes, we did produce the drug, but you know, the warehouses ordered it like value drug, McKesson, Cardinal, Amerisource, Bergamon. We need to sue them as well. And the wholesalers are going to say, we need to sue the pharmacists. The pharmacists are the ones that fill out that three-part 222 uh, form to order it. So the pharmacists are complicit. They're the problems here. We need to sue them. The pharmacists are going to say, it's the doctors. I've never filled an OxyContin prescription that a doctor didn't write a prescription for. It's their fault. The doctors are going to say, wait a minute. It's the patients are the ones that are demanding this pain relief. And the truth is, is the government said, you know, we have the uh, five 
uh, major symptoms that we need to look at at our patients. We need to look at their blood pressure, their breathing, and of course, pain becomes one of the vital signs as well. So it's the government's fault. The government has these satisfaction surveys that pretty much force our hands to uh, to uh, write for opioids to be able to satisfy our customers. So the point of that very lengthy story is this. There is enough blame to go around from Purdue Frederick all the way down to the patients. The truth of the matter is the FDA also does regulate the supply. The FDA and the DEA, primarily the DEA, are the ones that allow certain quantities of opioids to be converted into medicinal tablets. So the government, the manufacturers, the healthcare industries, and the patients all have some skin in this game, and we need to all get together to solve this problem. Yeah, wow. I, I, and yeah, I think you're exactly right. And as the most accessible healthcare providers to the community, pharmacists really have seen this unravel year after year firsthand as they really are the last handoff before you know the prescription reaches the patient. But this also positions us in a place to really leverage those relationships with our patients and, and make a positive impact. So my next question for you is how has Thompson Pharmacy integrated opioid stewardship into its pharmacy workflow and continued to offer responsible care to patients with opioid prescriptions? That is indeed a challenge because we are not privileged to be able to go to every doctor's appointment with every patient to see if indeed these opioids are being prescribed judiciously. We don't have that. Now, where I work at Dr. Gates' office as a clinical pharmacist two days a week, uh, I am privileged to see that. And at Dr. Gates' office, we have a meeting once a month where we discuss our opioid and our controlled substance patients to figure out ways to maybe lower their dose or come up with even better ways to manage their pain. But let's come back to the pharmacy, which is where I work um, most of my hours and days. So what I do when I see an opioid prescription is I draw a triangle in my head. Where does the prescriber have his office? Where does my patient live? And where is my pharmacy? And you draw that triangle and you need to have that triangle as small as possible. And ideally only one leg should be lengthy. So that's kind of how I look at the patient coming in. I think I'm a very capable and competent pharmacist. I study hard, I do all of that. But the bottom line is I am not such a great pharmacist that someone should come from the state of Indiana to be able to come to my drugstore. I am not such a great pharmacist that I, someone from the city of Indiana, Pennsylvania needs to drive an hour and a half to my pharmacy. So that's the first thing I look at. Once I determine that the prescription is indeed appropriate, you know, again, through my vision, through my uh, line of sight, then I look at ways of talking to the patient and talking to them about the addiction potential for these. Even if it's, you know, 10 or 12 tablets from a dentist, I will go out and have that conversation with them about the potential for opioid abuse. 
I always give these new starts, these acute medications from the emergency room, dentist's office, or family practice doctors. I always give them a Detura bag, which is um, a bag that you can dump your unused pills in, dump warm water in, seal it up, throw it in the trash, and get it deactivated. I'll also encourage patients to take their medications in for those take-back days. And where we live here in Blair County, we have a very robust group of uh, businesses called Operation Our Town, where we have medication drop-off boxes. And by using the medication drop-off boxes, get those medications out of the supply. I tell patients, do not hang on to your leftover pills. Be sure to dispose of them because 80% of all kids start abusing opioids from the medicine cabinet. Now, we know we hear this statistic all the time where, you know, uh, oral opioids, legitimate prescriptions are the cause of 75% of all heroin addicts start with pills. And that statistic is right. But what we need to do is turn that around to the flip side. How many of the people that are legitimately prescribed an opioid for a pain condition get addicted and move on to heroin? That number is only 4%. So that tells you that where are these people getting the 80% getting those medications? They're getting them from friends, they're getting them from family, and they're getting them out of the family medicine cabinet. So destruction of those unused opioids is very much paramount what I talk about at Thompson Pharmacy. Appropriate use and appropriate disposal is very necessary. And then if the patient is on uh, a dose of uh, opioids that's higher than 50 morphine milligram equivalents, and that's why it's so important for you pharmacy students to be able to calculate MMEs, then you need to be, make sure these patients per CDC guidelines have Narcan because they are at a greater risk for opioid overdose. So that's what I do. I, I take a look at the entire patient, their circumstances, and how they can use these medications short-term to get relief of pain with minimal potential for addiction. We also have integrated into our software platform, our, our pharmacy filling platform, we have the PDMP integrated right into it. So it's one click from the patient profile and the PDMP, the prescription drug monitoring program immediately pops up and we take a look at that too. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what, it's been such an inspiration to really learn about some of the innovative ways that Thompson Pharmacy has addressed this and the leadership that you and your staff have shown, particularly leveraging those relationships with physicians and other healthcare providers. So that's just some wonderful work that you all are doing. But Thompson Pharmacy is a part of something bigger, and that is the Flip the Pharmacy campaign. And for listeners who aren't familiar, Flip the Pharmacy is a nationwide effort to transform community-based pharmacy care processes and business models away from the outdated point-in-time prescription-level services to a more longitudinal patient-centered care approach. So in June, the Flip the Pharmacy campaign began progression to opioid focus. And Pete, you serve as a Flip the Pharmacy champion at Thompson Pharmacy. So what are some of the practice innovations that your pharmacy is planning to implement going forward? All right, I think the most important thing we need to understand what Flip the Pharmacy is, is it's a playbook. Okay, it's simply a playbook. 
that means it's written down. It's written down these tips, these ideas, these things that we should be doing in the pharmacy. And to be honest with you, most of this stuff us pharmacists are doing anyhow. We're just not documenting them. And so one of the things that I'm very blessed with is I have an excellent coach. Uh, hey, let's let's talk football, right? Even though we're not probably going to be playing it, uh, we have a playbook. And that's what Flip the Pharmacy is. We have coaches. And that's who John DeJames is. John DeJames is my coach. And here I am, a 62-year-old guy that has a coach after 40 years of practice. And I think it's the most brilliant part of Flip the Pharmacy is getting a guy like John DeJames, a well-seasoned clinician. He's about six or eight years younger than me. He's just a kid as far as I'm concerned. But he comes into the pharmacy at least monthly. And we talk about different strategies, especially with documentation that we use. So using Flip the Pharmacy and documenting our interventions is what's so critical. As far as opioids go, one of my biggest passions is Narcan and Naloxone. And we use a lot of it. I have administered or dispensed probably over 120 to 150 doses within the past two years of Narcan. I take all of my Suboxone patients when they come in and they're on Suboxone 8 to 16 milligrams a day, which is pretty much standard in our area we see our patients on. I convert that to the morphine milligram equivalents. And thanks to Dr. Mark Garofoli from West Virginia University, he is the one that elucidated that number nationally. Now, I mean, you might get some pain management people might dispute, is it really 30? But it's 30 morphine milligram per one milligram of buprenorphine. So if we translate that to Suboxone 8-2 twice a day, that equals 480 morphine milligram equivalents, almost 500 milligrams of morphine. I translate that to my patients because obviously they were abusing opioids at some juncture in their life. I'll say this buprenorphine 480 MMEs equals Oxycontin 80 four times a day. That'd be 320 milligrams times the 1.5 MME factor. So I said, you are in the equivalent with the Suboxone 8 two twice a day of Oxy 80 four times a day. Their, drop, their jaws virtually drop and hit the ground. They said, I didn't know it was that high. I've never yet met anybody who knew it was that high. So that's the first thing I do with my Suboxone patients. I go out and talk to them. I find a private area. We're in a 1,200 square foot drugstore and it's small, but I'll take them up an aisle and we'll find a quiet place to talk about it. So after I tell them that, I said, the purpose of me telling you that is so that you understand you have a lot of room to come down. 16 milligrams of anything doesn't sound like much, but when you convert it to the morphine milligram equivalents and speak a language that they're more than familiar with of converting it to OxyContin 84 times a day, they understand that. Then I tell them, per CDC guidelines, if we go over 50 morphine milligram equivalents a day, then we need to make sure you have Narcan. So we, uh, my superstar technician, Brad, he'll run a Narcan prescription using Dr. Rachel Levine, our Commonwealth physician's standing orders. And we process that, and it's almost always a zero copay. For my Medicaid patients, it's always a zero copay. So what we do then is we take the Narcan out. I talk to them about its use. And I'll be honest with you, most of my patients have heard of Narcan. And I think that it's really important that they use it. One of the challenges that we have as pharmacists is overcoming stigma. 
both stigma for our patients and we have to get over that stigma. We have also have the stigma for the drugs as well. So I've had fellow pharmacists, unfortunately, uneducated, unfortunately, tell me, well, haven't you heard of Narcan parties? I was out at pain week in Las Vegas with my son-in-law, Mark, and I had a doctor from Oklahoma come up and talk to me about Narcan parties. So thank goodness I had attended several continuing education uh, programs on that. And I said to him, sir, I've got to tell you about Narcan parties. They don't exist. They never existed. None ever happened. I said, let's think about this. What does a heroin addict shoot heroin into their veins for? And he looked at me like I was some sort of a dummy. And he says, well, obviously to prevent withdrawal. I said, you're absolutely right. It is to prevent withdrawal. I said, so when you think about it, why would any heroin addict want to push the dose of his heroin, knowing he's not going to get high, that, that was a long time ago, why would he push the dose of his heroin that he would become unconscious and stop breathing and have acute withdrawal precipitated within 15 seconds? There is no heroin addict on this planet, and I have talked to lots of them, that would ever want to see acute withdrawal from Narcan. Narcan parties never existed, and it shows sometimes the level of education that people need to have. So that's another thing I'm very passionate about is appropriate use of Narcan for these patients. We want to save lives. We're pharmacists. We dispense lisinopril to save lives. We dispense beta blockers to save lives. We dispense nitroglycerin to save lives. We dispense EpiPen to save lives. And I dispense Narcan to save lives. Wow. Wow. It's just absolutely fascinating to learn about not only the way that your pharmacy practice has really stepped up and, and led some of these efforts, but but also your unique kind of personalized approach to, to patient care. Um, now, Pete, you claim to always be a clinical pharmacist, quote unquote, uh, regardless of the practice setting. Can you just go into a little bit more detail about what you mean by that and your philosophy of care when it comes to caring for patients, specifically those with substance use and opioid use disorders? We are the drug experts. There is no doubt about it. We are the ones that have the level of expertise and we just need to work hard to develop that. And we need to develop those patient skills. And I have been doing it for all 39 years of my practice. The evidence was very clear when I told you the first story, when the district manager said, uh, you talk to your patients too much, uh, that is a good sign that you're doing a very, very good job. Yes, I have been uh, chastised by doctors for my intense patient counseling, but I always do it with the patient in mind. I take wonderful care of them. I also teach at St. Francis University in the physician assistant program. So this morning I covered three units of hematology. Next week I do endocrinology, so I'm a generalist. Okay, I uh, am very good at the general information. Uh, I do a job where each patient is an individual and we try to look beyond just the medication list to see what's going on with them. We have a lot of patients that we have put on our medication synchronization programs thanks to the efforts that flipped the pharmacy to do that. And now with opioids, you know, we, we talk to the patients about 
adjusting opioid doses. And at Dr. Gates' office where I work, we can work with those patients a little bit tighter because you're in the area where the patient gets prescribed. So if a patient is on, say, four Norco tens a day, and you say, is that working well for you? Oh, yeah, it's working great, doc. I feel good. Good. Let's back it down to three a day. Okay. If a patient says, oh, four a day isn't enough. I need five. You say, well, if it's not enough, that's a good dose. We're going to have to back you down. So if you work with the patient and communicate with them, both with the providers, okay, as well as the patient, you'll have good results. Patients need the level of care we're capable of giving to them. And I think we always need to be studying uh, our pharmacology. We need to be studying and working with these patients with opioid use disorder, as well as those patients who are in pain and giving them tips on how to manage that pain and using the knowledge base that we have to minimize opioid use and help with the recovery. I think dental infections and, and dental surgery is the perfect example of pain management. For years, you know, you sent somebody home with their wisdom teeth extraction and they got 30 Percocet 5 for the weekend. By the way, they've, they've done studies and uh, there are more opioids dispensed on Friday than any other day of the week because a lot of doctors don't like to be called in their doctor's offices. So these, uh, Dental surgery, they have found now, responds much better to ibuprofen. And why were we dumping 30 Percocet on people all along and having that extra stuff? Another thing that I'm a maniac with is medication disposal. In Blair County, we have a consortium of businessmen called Operation Our Town, and they have funded drop-off boxes in all of the police stations. Uh, Joshua Shapiro, our attorney general, bought all of these deterra bags for us in Blair County and some of the counties with opioid problems, significant opioid problems, to pass out to their patients. If you come to my pharmacy with a prescription for 12 Percocet from the emergency room, you will get a free deterra bag, and I will teach you how to use it so that you can dispose of any, any unwanted medication. You can't believe how many people thoroughly appreciate it and how many people will even come back again and say, could I have another one of those bags? I'm getting rid of all the medications in my medicine cabinet. We don't know how many lives we're saving by just doing something like facilitating medication disposal. Yeah, yeah, I think you're spot on, Pete. And I, I know for me personally, as as I begin practicing in just two years, that's that's the philosophy that I want guiding the way that I serve patients for sure. So, but there's no doubt, you know, in two years, 10 years, even 50 years, the role of pharmacist is just going to continue to become increasingly critical and, and change to meet the needs of our patients. So final thoughts for our listeners, in your opinion, what does the evolving role of pharmacists look like in the future? I get that question a lot because I precept students. Uh, as I was telling you about Jordan, he is student number 64. I precepted 64 students in the past 12 years at Thompson Pharmacy because Thompson's very much into the, the education and the knowledge of student pharmacists. Uh, I let them teach uh, a unit at St. Francis, you know, 20 minutes to a half an hour. Uh, Jordan did cephalosporins and things. And, and the question is always, Look what you've seen over the years, Pete. Uh, what do you think is going to happen? I am very, very hopeful for this profession if we continue to promote the knowledge that we have. 
A couple of thoughts I have are this. I think we need to make sure that when we do continuing education, we get good continuing education. I don't think it should just be 30 credits that we check off for a licensure period just to get that coveted license to practice for two years. We need to make sure that we are always practicing at the top of our license. Checking prescriptions for accuracy is what we do. We know that. But we are so much more than that. And I think if we get the insurance companies on board uh, to make adequate payments for the knowledge that we have. When you talk to an attorney and you get his opinion on something in his office, he bills you whatever, $95 an hour for it. Why is it with this enormous amount of knowledge that we have and the cost savings that we impact, are we not being reimbursed for it? Uh, I also write a column, a monthly column for drug topics, and I encourage everybody that's interested in community pharmacy to read that. I talk about it all the time. On this past May 1st, we had a lady come into this. Uh, we got a call from a doctor's office looking for trifluoridine eye drops. Nobody in the city of Altoona had it. Probably a dozen pharmacies, nobody has it. So I was on the phone with another pharmacy getting a transfer, hung up, and I said, who wanted trifluoridine eye drops? And they said, oh, it was some doctor's office. So I said, call all the doctor's office, all the eye doctors, and find out who it was. Trifluoridine eye drops are used for herpes keratitis, and that is a sight-threatening condition. We've got to help this patient. So my staff immediately jumped on it. Hey, Pete, who are the eye doctors? Well, there's Dr. Bud, former Pitt graduate, who was from pharmacy school, now an ophthalmologist. And then there's uh, the other doc down the street at Mountain View. Oh, give Laurel Eye Clinic a call. They call Laurel Eye Clinic. Yes, it was us. Did you find a trifluoridine? No, and we don't know what to do. I said, we will take care of that patient. She says, okay, she's not your patient. I don't care. Give us the prescription. She gave us the patient's name and the prescription. I sent my driver out to Value Drug uh, to pick up a bottle of trifluoridine eye drops with a cooler. He brings it back and he's got a big smile on his face. Here's what you wanted, big guy. Hey, thanks a lot, Don. And the lady's daughter comes in at four o'clock. We process the trifluoridine eye drop prescription. I give her the full-blown consultation on herpes keratitis. It's sight-threatening. Make sure she's using it every two hours a day, exactly as the doctor does. My technician comes over with the status face on, Brooke. And I said, what's wrong, Amber? And she said, we lost $60 filling this prescription. I said, that lady's vision is important to Thompson Pharmacy and it's to me. If I have to take the $60 out of my wallet, I will, but I know Bill Thompson won't have a problem with it because he's invested in this as much as anyone else. So we made a Herculean effort to help a patient with a sight-saving drug and the insurance company didn't even reimburse us what we paid for the drug. I wasn't asking for gas money to the warehouse. I wasn't asking to pay Big Don. I wasn't asking to pay for the prescription label, the vial, or my expertise. I wanted the drug paid for. I contested that payment and it was still denied. Brooke, that kind of stuff can't happen anymore. And that's why we have to get more and more of our providers and the insurance companies on board to make sure that we are adequately compensated for the skill set that we have. And when that happens, this will indeed go back to being the greatest profession that it was 20 years ago before the insurance companies put a stranglehold on us. 
Pete, it, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today and to learn more about your tremendous career journey and the impactful work that you and the staff at Thompson Pharmacy are doing. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. And if there's anything I want every pharmacist to remember is this. Patients don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Thank you, Brooke. It's been a pleasure. It, it has been a pleasure. And, and if I'm lucky, maybe I'll be joining you on rotation next year because you made you it sound like your, your bedroom is ready across the hall and I'll pack your lunch. <laughs> Thank you, Pete. Appreciate it. <laughs> And lastly, to our listeners, thank you for listening to another episode of Beyond the SIG. Keep tuning in twice a month to learn more about the impactful stories shaping community pharmacy practice transformation. Thanks for listening to Beyond the SIG, a prescription for transformative pharmacy care. Be sure to check back with the Pharmacy Podcast Network soon for the next episode. To learn more about transforming the role of the pharmacist, visit pharmacists.com forward slash podcast. That's pharmacists.com forward slash podcast. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.